Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. My heart is full. I am excited to get into the word this morning. And uh, we are in the midst of a series, and within a series, within a series, within a series. We've been talking about prayer. And we were, when we first launched into this, we looked at four facets or four theological categories that are essential for us to understand if we're really able to understand prayer. And we talked about how the reason a lot of people don't pray is their theology undermines their behavior. What they believe, they, because of their theology, they really don't see that prayer would make a difference. A lot of people believe that God, everything that happens is God's will, that God is controlling human history, and therefore God's going to do what God's going to do with or without us, and so why do we invest time in prayer? We try to do it out of obedience, we try to white knuckle it, but it's hard to stay in the pocket of discipline when it really doesn't matter anyway, and that is a fallacy. The fact is God has delegated the earth to us. According to Psalm chapter 8, it's reiterated in Hebrews chapter 2. The world has been given to man, and so God's God's mechanism by which he governs the earth is through prayer. He called you and I to pray. So while we wring our hands saying, why doesn't God do something? God's looking at us saying, you do something. Invite my intervention. We talked about how the prayer can be summed up in this concise little statement. Uh, divine intervention only by human invitation. So God longs to intervene, but he's going to do it through us. He will not violate the system he set up. So that was really the first part of our series. It's a biblical cosmology. It's the system in which this whole thing takes place. God will not violate the system he himself set up. So that's a biblical cosmology. Then we looked at uh, our theology proper, how we see God. Then we looked, we touched on anthropology. We're the prayer. Our, Our view of man, a biblical view of man, we're going to circle back around and touch on this again. Because what I really want to look at is the power of travail. God wants to use us to travail in prayer. And what does that mean? That sounds kind of strange. We're going to, we're going to look at that. But before we do that, I really want to hit the last category of our theology so that we have a biblical theology of prayer. We're going to circle back around and hit this one. Wow, let there be light. And so that, that's really impressive when you're preaching and it gets brighter. So, we have, and so we're, going to, we're going to touch on all of these in the coming days. We're going to tie all this together. What we're looking at now is the opposition to our praying. We said last week that this, this principle that God delegated the earth to man and therefore it's divine intervention only by human invitation. That explains why we pray. That explains the event of prayer, but it doesn't explain the process of prayer. It explains why we have to pray, but it doesn't explain why it takes so long. Because a lot of us have been praying a long time about certain things. So what is going on with that? If God really has delegated the authority to us, why are we seeing that opposition? And that's what we're looking at right now. We're looking at the opposition. And really, we're looking at the spiritual realm. There are angels. There are demons. There, are, there is God. There is man. And we all, we are wrestling. We're contending for a break-in of the kingdom of God. That terminology is not just charismatic bravado. That is solid biblical theology. So I want to make a case for that this morning. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for all that's gone on here this morning. Jesus, we could go home already and be full. But Lord, we want to hear from you this morning. So Lord, I ask that you would instruct us, stretch us. Lord, align our minds with your word. 
God, we want to think your thoughts. We want to be like Jesus. We want to do what you're doing and say what you're saying. Nothing more, nothing less. In Jesus' name, amen. I was sharing with one of the prayer prayer groups this morning, this week, and I really want to encourage you, make it out for prayer. It's been wonderful. Uh, Those of you that have been coming out, I sure appreciate it. I know you've been enjoying it as much as I have. Uh, God is just speaking to us and and directing us in prayer, and I believe he's he's training us. We're in training for reigning. You know that? We're going to rule and reign with him in eternity, but that starts now. We need to learn to rule and reign with him in the house of prayer. That we, we, prayer begins with us expressing our desires with words to him. But it ends with us expressing his desires with words and proclamations. We begin to declare God's word and God will, will put authority behind that. And so we need to get our hearts adjusted. I was sharing with the, one of the groups this morning, or this, this week rather, uh, I threw my back out two weeks ago. Now, I having, I've got a terrible posture. I remember making a conscious decision as a little boy. All the cool kids that were like, you know, the old kids, like sixth grade, the real old ones, they all slouched, you know, they were. So I remember thinking, I'm going to be a sloucher, and I've never recovered. I've got a terrible posture. And so sometimes my back will bother me, but I didn't, I didn't tend to it. And uh, so I threw my back out a little bit, and I couldn't look up, and it was just bothering me for several months. And I said to Kathy, yeah, I probably had to get that adjusted. I picked our daughter up to put her to bed one night. We have a daughter that's in a wheelchair, and uh, she's a full-grown woman. Uh, She's 28 years old now. Is that right? Yeah. So uh, I put her to bed, and within an hour, I literally could not move. Something went out, and the the chiropractor said, I moved two two vertebrae. So I'm laying in bed. (laughs) Now, you ladies know how wimpy us men are when we get hurt. Look at all these, I saw this agreement. They're all, it, uh, But I was, Kathy, do I need to call an ambulance? And I, but I literally could not move because I, you, if you don't realize, in order to roll over in bed, you have to lift your head. But I would try to lift my head and the pain would shoot down my arms. So I thought, okay, if I can reach over and pick my head up by my, with my hair, then I can move my head and then my body will follow. But I couldn't get my arms to move. And she said, do I need to call an ambulance? I said, no, but you're probably going to have to sleep in another bed tonight because I'll keep you up all night. And finally, I was able to move and sleep a little bit. And the, the next morning, I was on a prayer call with some leaders. And uh, I just shared with me, yeah, man, I threw my back out. And when I said it, I felt like the Lord spoke to me and said, it's prophetic. Now, I know some of you are thinking, you weird people at Heartland, everything's prophetic. But I did. I felt like the Lord said, it's prophetic. And then I argued with him. I thought, Lord, you wouldn't let my back go out to speak to me. And he immediately reminded me of Hosea, who he instructed to marry a prostitute who broke his heart. And I thought, Lord, I have nothing to complain about. I'll take the back. Okay. And this is what he began to talk to me about, how that he wants to release the weight of the head upon the church. Jesus is the head of the church. And there is a weighty authority that's coming to the church of Jesus Christ. But in order for that to happen, the government is upon his shoulders. And there's going to have to be an adjustment, a realignment with the body of Christ. Because there's things out of alignment in us individually. And I'm preaching to me too. God's adjusting things. He's bringing things into alignment in our individual lives, but also corporately in our relationships with one another. And so a a chiropractor in town graciously opened his office that morning and tortured me for like an hour. It was really mean to me. 
And uh, I was whimpering and whining, but he wasn't as compassionate as my wife. He just, and, uh, he got things back. He said, it's back in place. He said, but you're going to be sore because your muscles aren't, aren't there yet. And so my muscles are still trying to pull my back into the dysfunctional norm it got used to. Now that'll preach, not this morning, but sometime. It, uh, it, my muscles were trying to pull my back into the dysfunctional norm. And I've got to get used to the new norm of health, that things are in alignment. Your spinal column is the messaging system by which the head communicates to the body. And the head of the church wants to send communication through the body, but there's some things that are out of alignment. And God is going to apply some pressure and crack some things, and it will hurt, but in the end, it will be much better. I'm telling you, you mark my words. I'm speaking prophetically this morning, what is on the horizon for the church of Jesus Christ in the coming days, we will hear of churches with such authority that there will be acts of nature that come out of those places through declaration. And it's going to get the attention of the world because God is going to begin to reestablish his authority. The last move of God was about the love of the father, the power of God being restored. Those of you that have been around for a while, I spent many years in ministry before the revival in the mid-90s hit. And I prayed for a lot of people and saw very few people healed. After that move, it was like healing opened up in the body of Christ. And it was because God restored power to the church. And it was the love of God. This next move is going to be a correction because if we go to one end of the pendulum too far, it's like a walking person. If you think about it, walking is a perpetual state of imbalance. We just learn to do it gracefully. If you don't believe me, watch a little baby when it learns to walk. It doesn't do it as graceful. It takes a couple steps and then tips over. And so we need to learn. And so progress in the kingdom, progress in our, our, our personal lives mean that God will t- emphasize one thing and then bring correction. And as, as we move along, God is giving us progress in life. And there's a pendulum swing that's coming. He's going to restore. The love of God came in the last move. It's going to be the fear of the Lord in the next move. The power of God was restored in the last move. It's going to be the authority of heaven that's restored in the new one. And whereas encounters became much more common, encounters with God became much more common. It became an emphasis in the body of Christ through the last move. What's going to come is God's going to restore a reverence for his word. We're going to read his word and tremble. The Lord says, this is, this is the one that I respect. Do you know that you can have a hard attitude that actually garners respect from God? That is an amazing thing. God said, this is the one I respect. He who trembles at my word. And God's going to restore a reverence for his word. And so this, this is, but it's going to take an adjustment in our lives. All of us. We all have things to be adjusted and we just want to cooperate with him. And so God's going to crack us. So, amen. If you can't say amen, say oh me. All right. Let's uh, go ahead and turn with me to Psalm 82. We're looking at the opposition to our prayers because we need to understand what's really going on when we pray. We need to understand why there is opposition. We can, we can inadvertently surrender 
the lack of answers. We can create a theology that justifies a lack of fruitfulness in our prayer life if we're not careful. If we don't understand what's really going on, we'll create a theology to explain it away. Your mind hates unfinished business. That cogn- cognitive dissonance, that those contradictions in our mind, your mind will seek to solve them with a theology. And you better make sure that it's the theology of the Bible. And so we need to make sure that our theology is, is rooted in the word. So last week we talked, we opened with the first verse of scripture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's a fascinating place for God to start. What he's saying is that he, there, was a, there was a point in time called the beginning that he created two realms, the heavens and the earth. Many people will tell you that the heavens are older than the earth and that's the eternal realm and this is the temporary realm, but that's not true. They were created at the same time. The earth was created for man, but where, what was the heavens created for? We say, well, that was created for God to hang out. No, Solomon tells us that the heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain him. The heavens were created as much for you as the earth was. They are both our domain. We We were created for the spiritual realm and the physical realm. But through the fall, our spirit man died. Our spirit man is that organ of our nature that can operate in that invisible realm around us known as the spiritual realm. So in in dying, in our spirit man dying through the fall in sin, we're born into it. Adam and Eve fell into it. When we were born in sin, we are dead to the spiritual realm. When we're born again, when we accept Jesus, his His spirit comes in and gives new life to our spirit and we're born again. We have new life. And all of a sudden we have an awareness of the spiritual realm. I'll never forget when I got saved. I was a homeless alcoholic laying in a borrowed bedroom and I thought I'll just open communications with Jesus. I wasn't planning on getting saved. I was just going to talk to him. I said his name. His presence invaded that room. I started weeping, laughing, speaking in tongues. And then I thought I better get, better say the sinner's prayer. And that, I'm telling you, that was in, I think August of 1983 and my life still hinges on that moment. The people that knew me before then cannot believe the man that I am now. Because God changed me. He transformed my life. He delivered me from alcoholism. It was was an amazing miracle. But my spirit man came alive. And I I didn't realize. It was all of a sudden. All this equipment came online. All of a sudden I was picking up on things that I didn't pick up on before. And I, there were things that I was sensing in the environment that I wasn't sensing before then. And I, at that time, I didn't have anybody to teach me right away. And, and I, would, I would sense things and then they would come to pass. And I thought, oh, what was that? It was, it was a strange, well, it's because we're made to be engaged with the spiritual realm. You are a spiritual being and God wants to teach you to develop your spiritual senses. Paul talked about this. Our spiritual eyes. He said that the eyes of your heart or your spiritual eyes would be enlightened. We have spiritual ears to hear. Jesus said, my sheep will know my voice. He didn't say they'll recognize the truth in my word, although that's a valid thing. It's an important thing. He said, my, my people, my sheep will hear my voice. We're to hear, we're to see, we're to sense what God is doing. And there's a growing in that. We need to develop that because we want to move with him. We want to live in that environment. So we have a spiritual realm and a physical realm, heaven and earth. They were never meant to be disconnected. They were never meant to, to function independently. And so God has created you as a spiritual being. 
When we pray, we come up against opposition in the spiritual realm. So what's going on there? Let's look at, oh my goodness, it's half past. Let's, let's read uh, Psalm 82. Look at verse 1. This is an interesting passage that for years I did not understand. Many years. I, I wasn't taught this in Bible school. There's, there's more and more being written about this, this passage these days. And I believe that Paul says very clearly in Ephesians chapter 3 that there were truths that were held in waiting for a given time. There are times where God will hold a truth for a given moment in history because history is pushed forward through revelation. We don't have time to make a case for that, but just chase that one down. Look at Psalm 82. Verse 1, God presides in the great assembly. He, give ju he gives judgment among the gods. Let me read it in the ESV. That's the NIV. I'll read it in the ESV. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Now, what is that? How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the, weak, the wicked? Selah means think about it. Pause and give it some thought. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, verse 6, you are gods, sons of the Most High. All of you, nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. There is a whole lot in that passage. It sums up with, arise, O God, and inherit the nations. Take, take your inheritance, which are the nations. So he says, God has taken his place in the divine council. Now we touched on this a number of weeks back when we talked about how God rules. God rules. God is a team player. God loves to delegate things. God's kingdom is an aristocracy. Do you realize that? An aristocracy is rulership by family. That lands and titles and dominion is given to those within the royal family. And it is in that way in which an emperor rules over his vast estate. He can't, he can't rule it all by himself. So what he does is he delegates it to family members who are faithful. Those two principles. And so in that way, the, there's, a, there's already a, a heart loyalty to the emperor because they are family. God is no different. God rules by royal family. He has the sons of God. Now we looked at how we see this template for how God rules the universe in heaven. There is a royal family. There is a divine council is the way that uh, Psalm 82 states it. We see this in Job chapter 1. It says, uh, when the, it, one day the sons of God who have been walking throughout the earth, God called them unto himself. And thus Satan, it says, came to him and he said, where have you been? He said, I was walking throughout the whole earth. And he said, I was, I was looking. And he said, did you see Job? And that enters into this whole story of Job. But it talks about the sons of God. Now, some people will tell you, oh, that was angels. But it's more than angels. This is a different class of being. It's literally the Elohim. Now, most people think that the Hebrew word Elohim is a title for God. That it, it means that it, it just as Jehovah. 
Jehovah is a title for God, that Elohim is a title for God. But it's not. Elohim is a designation of a class of spiritual beings. And they are also referred to as the sons of God in Scripture. They're also referred to as the divine counsel. We see this in a number of passages. Uh, when... Micaiah, the prophet, came to Ahab. He said, I saw the Lord sit on his throne and he began to ask these spirits, what are we going to do about Ahab? We're going to take Ahab out. Ahab had been in rebellion against God. So God said, God said, ask these spirits, how are we going to take him out? And one of the spirits steps forward and says, I'll become a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets. And God said, okay, that's what we're going to do. It's a strange passage. There's more problems than we have time to address this morning, but it's the word of God. So how do we reconcile this with the nature and character of God? The fact is God rules by a royal council, by a divine council. These beings are also referred to as gods. That's why God is designated as the most high God. Now they are a class of being. They are created. That's why God is the most high God. There's only one uncreated God. Manifesting in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But they are designated as gods. And that's why he refers to it in this passage. Uh, Psalm 82, God presides in the great assembly or in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. But then he rebukes these gods, these beings, these these sons, he calls them the sons of God later on in the passage. Now, some people will teach this and say he's talking to human kings believers or children of Israel, but that is not what he's talking about. It's very clear when you begin to see throughout scripture this theme. It says in the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. And then he begins to rebuke these gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. He's charging them. He's saying, listen, this is your job to do. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither, neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Then in verse 6, he rebukes them. And listen to what the Lord, the Most High God, says to this divine council. I said to you, you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall fall like any prince. And he judges these beings, these members of the divine council. Now this is Old Testament language. And it's interesting if you get into some of the ancient texts, the Masoretic texts, some of the Ugaritic texts, there's, there's ancient texts that have been found just, just within the last 50 to 60 years. And they find that much of the oral history of the ancient world matches this, this worldview that the Hebrew people had. Because the closer you get to the beginning, the, there is, matter of fact, there's a, a great book called Eternity in Their Hearts. And uh, it was written by Don Richardson, the same guy who wrote the book Peace Child. And uh, he talks about how the, you get back into the oral history of some of these cultures, and the farther back you get into their history, the more their ancient history matches the first 12 chapters of Scripture. They have a story of a flood. They have a story of a forbidden fruit and the, 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 the couple, you know, the original couple being, uh, uh, you know, cut off from God and all these stories. 
And these ancient cultures had this, these stories of these gods, but then the most high God. And so we see this, this history throughout scripture. Now, let, let's turn to Deuteronomy 32. Because he's referring back to this passage. Deuteronomy 32. My computer's not cooperating here. Here we go. Deuteronomy 32. Listen to what he says. Look at verse 8. Now this is Moses' declaration to the children of Israel. It's his kind of his parting volley. He's, he's, he's speaking to them and he's kind of giving them an overview of what God has done for them. And look at verse 8. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided among mankind... When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Now, depending on what translation you are reading this morning, it'll say either according to the, the number of the sons of God, or it'll say according to the number of the sons of Israel. The NIV, NIV uh, translates it the sons of Israel, but then there'll be a little notation at the bottom that says this. Masoretic text and Dead Sea Scrolls, see also the Septuagint, which translates this term, the sons of God. So the Septuagint was the Greek version of the Old Testament. Alexander the Great wanted to have every great book translated into Greek, and so he established a city humbly after himself, Alexandria, Egypt, and it had the most uh, phenomenal library in all of the world, and he had all these books translated into Greek, and so he had the Hebrew scriptures translated into Greek. We know it as the Septuagint. And the reason the Septuagint is so important to you and I is because it gets us closer to that culture that was around at that time. So we're looking at those who knew both Hebrew and Greek and the ancient world and they were studying these manuscripts. How did they interpret these words? And so you'll hear people talk about the Septuagint. The Septuagint translates this, the sons of God. The Masoretic text translates it as the sons of God. And scholars, many modern scholars agree with that because he's talking about, there's, there's agreement that he's talking about what happened after the Tower of Babel. If you remember in the Tower of Babel, the, the men of the earth came together and they were going to build this uh, ziggurat is what it really was. And they were going to, it was an occult thing where they were going to harness the powers of nature. And God came down and judged it. And he divided them among languages and they were dispersed across the earth. So what he's talking about here, when it says he, the Most High, gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, set up boundaries for the people according to the sons of God, for the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted inheritance. Moses is reminding them, listen, when God divided up the children among the earth according to the sons of God, he allocated them according to the divine counsel, but he reserved Israel for himself. Now, what does all this have to do with prayer? Well, what we see in the Old Testament as these sons of God, these Elohim, the divine counsel, some of which rebelled, are now designated in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, with the word principality. These are ruling spirits over regions. 
And we see here how they got their authority. They were delegated that by God. They were given those, those areas by the Lord. And that's why throughout the earth there were people that would serve these gods and sacrifice to them. And they would, they would give homage to these gods. And we see some really grotesque things happen all down through history. There were gods that demanded human sacrifice and, and sexual immorality and all of this stuff and played on the lusts of men. And it was this terrible thing. But God reserved the people for himself because what God was going to do is he was going to create a new family, a family on earth. And so he started with Israel. Now you can think, well, man, what about the people that weren't Israel? Those poor people were just put out to pasture and destined for hell. All through the, the Old Testament, we see those who would come forward and to the God of Israel, and they would look for help, and God would graciously step in, be it Haman who wanted uh, healing from leprosy, the Assyrian general, and so forth, all down through Scripture and even into the New Testament. Matter of fact, those that Jesus, if you remember, Jesus really isolated his ministry largely to Israel. When the Syrophoenician woman came to Jesus and she said, please deliver my son, he looked at her and he said, Would I, should I give the children's bread to the dogs? Can you imagine? And what was her response? She humbly said, Lord, all it would take is a crumb to deliver my child. And the Lord spun on his heels and he said, I have not seen such great faith in all of Israel. Go and you have received what you've requested. Because she pressed in to faith. So it wasn't that they were shut out, but God was pushing a reset and now he started a new race of the sons of God, which are you and I. And he did that through Christ. And so now... In the New Testament, we see in Colossians chapter, I want to say it's Colossians chapter 2, where it says that he paraded the principalities and powers in the heavenly realm, stripped them of their authority, and paraded them into shame. So it, in what he declared in he, uh, so, uh, Psalm 82, he judged these false gods who didn't exercise their authority the way God intended. He judged them at the cross, stripped them of their authority, and then he says at his resurrection, all authority has been given unto me. Now you therefore go into all nations and preach the gospel. Because it's the fulfillment of the end of Psalm 82. He's going to take the nations as his inheritance. It's that Psalm 2 where Jesus, it says of Jesus, the father says to the son, ask of me and I will give the nations as an inheritance unto you. He disinherited the nations and now he's taking them back. But he does it through the church. So when you and I are praying, we are contending. Paul says in Hebrew, uh, Ephesians chapter 6, he said, We wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Authorities in these high places, these, these powers of wickedness in the heavenly realms. So there's a contention because even though they've been judged, they don't give up. It's like they're exercising squatters' rights. Matter of fact, let's turn to, look at Psalm 149. This is a great verse. I love this verse. 
Matter of fact, I've, I've prayed this over people. When, we, uh, when people have needed deliverance, I like to torment the tormentor. Listen to this, verse 1. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the saints. Let Israel rejoice in their maker. Let the people of Zion be glad in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing and make music to him with tambourine and harp. Tell you what we just did this morning in worship, that's warfare. That is us taking a stand for the kingdom of God. Scripture is very clear that when we praise him, we enthrone him. It says he inhabits. The, the word Hebrew word for inhabits literally means sits down or enthrones himself in the praise of his people. When we worship God, we're providing an enth- a throne for him to sit on. And he begins to exercise his dominion from that place where we glorify him. That's why often it's in worship that people's bodies begin to get healed. Uh, they go through deliverance. There's oppression that begins to lift off of people's lives. Because it's there that God begins to exercise his dominion. And so he says, praise him, humble yourselves with dancing. And if you've ever seen me dance, it's humiliating. It's a fulfillment of this scripture. I'm very scriptural in my dancing moves. It's humbling. Verse 5. You laugh, but I'm telling you. Verse 5. Let the saints rejoice in this honor and sing for joy on their beds. I always thought that's interesting where he tells us to sing for joy. It's that place of rest. And then look at what it says, verse 6. I love this. May the praise of God be in their mouths and a double-edged sword in their hands. To what? To inflict vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples. To bind their kings, their rulers with fetters and their nobles with shackles of iron. To carry out the sentence written against them. This is the glory of all the saints. Praise the Lord. Now, the Old Testament version of that is, yeah, it was physical warfare and and there's, you know, a sentence written against the king. But the spiritual application for the New Testament saint, there's a greater application for you and I. That with the praise of God in our mouth and a two-edged sword, the word of the Lord in our hand, we literally bind these ruling spirits with shackles of iron and fetters. And we carry out the sentence written against them. Where was this sentence written? It was written on Calvary. And we're carrying out the edicts of Calvary against the enemy. And so it's with the preaching of the gospel that we invite the inhabitants of every region. Come and serve our conquering king. With our worship, we enthrone him. We invite him to come and begin to rule and reign in that place. And it's in that way that we're taking dominion. We go into all the earth. And that is the way in which the nations become the nations of our God, the kingdoms of our God. We are called to rule and reign, but there is a battle. We talked last week how it's very clear. Ephesians chapter 1, all spiritual blessings have been given to us and they reside in heavenly realms. They've been given to us in Christ and these blessings are literally in heavenly realms. Later on in that same chapter, Jesus is enthroned in those heavenly realms It means he's been given those. It it doesn't necessarily mean that he is exercising all the dominion that he won at Calvary. Because he's waiting to exercise it through you. 
Ephesians chapter 2. We are enthroned with him. It doesn't necessarily mean that we are exercising all the dominion we've been given. We are growing into that. Okay, so chapter 1. All the blessings are in heavenly realms. They're ours. We are, Jesus is enthroned in those same realms. You and I are co-regents. We've been enthroned with him. Chapter 3. Two or three, it says that he's going to express his wisdom to the principalities and powers through the church in the heavenly realms. And then chapter six, it says that we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in those same heavenly realms. The enemy is trying to exercise dominion over our inheritance that's in the spirit. And we wrestle with them. We're contending for the release of those blessings. I said last week, as we were just landing, I remember in 2005, we hit a pocket. There was, there'd been fasting and praying and, and uh, we'd just been contending. And all of a sudden, we hit this, this healing thing that, man, week after week, month after month, people were being healed in every service. Uh, back then, we had, there, it started out three services and then we moved into the new building. So we had two services a weekend before we expanded the sanctuary. And every service, there were multiple healings, dramatic healings. And uh, people were just, it was just popping up. And I, I didn't understand what happened, but I am now convinced that we entered into a healing realm. We, in our contention, our prayer, we broke into something that was our inheritance. And God wants us to have more. He wants us to exercise dominion over those spiritual blessings. But the same realms that contain the blessings also contain principalities and powers that are resisting our dominion. And so it's through worship and intercession that we begin to lay claim to what God has given to us. Now, we talked last week about how he made the heavens and the earth. There is a connection between the two. Not every place on planet earth has the same spiritual blessings as every other place. Just as there are unique resources in different places in the earth, different land mass, some have diamonds in the ground, some have coal, some, there are different resources in the land. There are different resources in the spirit in different places. And God wants to release those to the inhabitants of those places. When Paul preached in Acts chapter 17, I want to say it is, he, he was preaching and he said, God hath chosen the times and the places in which men should live. It's a reference, it's an allusion to that Deuteronomy 32 passage where God has assigned your location and your generation. He assigned where you live and the hour in which you live and your destiny, your assignment, the whole reason you were made. And there's something that should dawn on you. There should, you should be ignited with a sense of destiny. I was made for this moment in human history. Yes. I was created for now. Yes. Whatever's going on in the earth, God decided that you were up to what we're facing right now as a nation. God decided he's going to sweep you into the kingdom for such a time as this. 
In his omniscience, his great wisdom, he created you, custom designed you for this moment in human history. Don't miss your opportunity to step into all that God created you to be. So God creates us. He chooses the times and the places in which we should live. Those places are an assignment as well as the hour in which you live. We see this in Matthew 11 and 12. Jesus begins to talk about how cities, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, will rise up and witness against places at the end of the age, at the judgment seat. And he'll say, these, these corporate group of people that all lived in a city and came under the judgment of God, at the judgment seat will say, you had greater light than we did and sinned against it. So there's a corporate accountability. There's a sense in which they will give response, they will give an answer for the hour in which they live and the place in which they live. It said that they will stand up against that generation. So there's something about the moment in time that you and I live that we are stewards of. I don't fully understand that, but I take that very seriously. There's a reason that you and I live in this pregnant moment of human history when there is such tremendous contention for the nations of the earth. Yes. God created you for this moment. And you must not miss it. Jesus did not save you so you can simply have a better life. That is a side benefit. That's something you benefit from. Hallelujah. But you were created for something more than a nicer home and better food and a nicer car. And then you die a believer. You were meant to introduce the kingdom of heaven through your declarations. Your voice carries authority. And you were intended to hear the word of the Lord and then begin to pray it and begin to declare it and begin to impose the rulership of heaven on the principalities and powers in heavenly realms. So they must give way to the new sons of God. Those of us who are born again, we make these declarations. And these fallen sons of God have to give way to the word of the Lord. Not only that, we've got some cohorts in the spirit. The, angel, the angels of God. Jesus is the captain of the Lord's host. He's got several titles, some really cool titles. And one of them is, he's the captain of the Lord's army. It's the angel armies. And Psalm 103 says, these angels obey the voice of his word. Yes. It's his word, but guess whose voice it is? Yours. Your voice is the voice of authority in this hour, in this dispensation of history. God has delegated that to us. And so as we understand the word of the Lord and we make those declarations, we literally release the angelic to go and fight the battles, to displace those powers of darkness over lands. Yes. And so we go into places. And sometimes there, there's these fallen angels and these fallen beings that are exerting influence over a physical location. And sometimes there's a legal reason why they're exercising authority. And we have to discern that. There is such a thing as defiled ground. There are places where evil has taken place and it gives the enemy legal right. And we need to deal with those things. 
People say, well, yeah, but Jesus already took care of that. Jesus already took care of your healing, but you have to appropriate it by faith. He already took care of your salvation, but you better appropriate it by faith or you won't enjoy it. It's up to us. God has, Jesus won it. Jesus bought it. The Spirit brought it. And we need to apply it. And i got to find another word to rhyme. But we have to be the ones to impose this victory. And so this thing of defiled ground, we need to understand there, are, there is such a thing as sacred space. That has, there are things that have happened in human history where you can, let me give you a biblical precedence for this because you think, well, pastor, you're making this stuff up. Bethel, Genesis 28. Jacob, he's running from his brother. He's been a bad boy. He is literally having to run for his life from his brother and he goes to sleep at this place called Luz. And while he's sleeping, I remember as a kid, I, this is the one thing I remembered about that story. He put his head on a rock. I mean, if you're a bad boy, you will, you'll get a rock for a pillow. And so he's sleeping, and in he has this encounter with God. There's a dream, and God is standing at the top of a ladder, and he begins to declare over Jacob his destiny. And Jacob wakes up and he is all of a sudden aware of what he's in. He said, this is none other than the gate of heaven. This is the house of God. He gives two titles, two designations to one location. One is the spiritual heavenly perspective. This is a gate for heaven. This is an opening for heavenly activity because he saw the angels ascending and descending. There are places that have greater activity of heaven than other places. You know that? And then he said, it's the house of God. God's presence resides here. What Jacob didn't understand is that he had entered into a place. He thought it was just any place. He was stopping for the night. But he was enjoying an atmosphere actually cultivated by his grandfather, Abram's sacrifices decades earlier. Twice, Jacob made sacrifices there and created an open heaven. The activity of his righteous grandfather created something that he could enjoy. The problem is he didn't understand it. Do you know you can enjoy something you don't understand? And that's great for you, but it stinks for everybody else because you can't replicate it until you understand it. And God wants to teach us. The Lord spoke to me a few years ago, and he's been speaking to me about this again recently, that he wants to develop, I know this sounds weird, a Bethel forging mechanism. It's a people of prayer and prophecy and declaration. People that will fast and lay down their life to see God's purposes established in this generation. He wants to create the house of God. We so need the house of God right now that people can run and they know if I'm in trouble, if I go to that location, there's something of heaven that registers there. I don't feel anywhere else. And it's because somebody paid a price there. There's been activity that's happened there that's created an opening that I can run to and I can find relief. But it's also a gate of heaven. And it says the angels ascended before they descended because the angels were actually assigned to that geographic location. There are also places that can be the gate of hell because of the defilement that has happened there. Jesus took his disciples. I'll, I'll land this in just a moment here. Jesus took his disciples in Matthew 16 to a place 
Caesarea Philippi, it was literally known as the gate of hell. It was a rock formation. There was a big open mouth cave. And people believed it was the gate to Sheol. They believed it was the mouth of hell itself. And there had been human sacrifice there over the centuries and all kinds of grotesque things that people got into. And Jesus intentionally took his disciples there. He went on a long journey and he parked it there. And then he said this. I will build my church, my ecclesia, my governing body of people is what that means. My authoritative governing body of people. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He went right into the enemy's territory. And he parked himself right at a stronghold of hell. A place of defilement where there was more evil. You ever drove somewhere and you can feel, boy, this is a creepy place. You may not know. You don't know whatever happened. I remember going into Tulawa, Colombia. We got there and I got into the hotel room. I said, whoa, there is witchcraft in this city. There's, just, there's all kinds of witchcraft going on. I found out the next night there was an international witchcraft convention taking place in the city. And it was on. I'm telling you what, the glory broke open that night. We could have literally preached on a Campbell's soup can and God would have showed up. Remember that, Roger? Oh my goodness. We didn't even, we didn't even get done preaching. I, I, I'm preaching and I started prophesying and then healings just started breaking out. We just had to land it. I mean, healings just, uh, dramatic miracles just began to break out because God wanted to show up and stake his claim in that place of darkness. So listen, here, we got to land this. Uh, like you're the one holding me up. Okay. <laughs> okay. I really am. Here's the application this morning. God moved you here. And if you disobeyed God to get here, get back where you're supposed to be. We'll miss you, but get there. Don't miss your assignment. If God moved you here, there's a reason in his divine purposes. And you need to get online and, and become aware of that because we are living in a land where there are principalities and powers trying to exert their influence but they're not going to win because we are the new sons of God. And we are, we are pressing the crown rights of our conquering king. When we preach the gospel, we're inviting the inhabitants of the land. Come and join the kingdom of our benevolent king who heals and saves and forgives. Your life matters. Your authority matters. And what the enemy wants to do is get you so caught up in your interests in your little life that you miss the bigger picture. Your, the part you play in God's bigger plan. You need to understand God chose the times and places in which you live. And he's established you. Let me close with a story. Okay? Honest, I will close. It was, it was probably, matter of fact, I just heard the CD. Christopher had preached this message. It was in 2011, I believe. And I just listened to the message. And he preached on, I won't take no for an answer. And I, I just remember sitting on the front and just, I, this hunger was rising in me. And so Christopher gives the, the altar call and I just fell on my face right here. And I was on my face and as soon as I hit the floor, I went into a vision. And I saw myself on this, this rolling plane. It was beautiful. 
but I knew the enemy's coming and I can't give up this ground. This is my assignment. I can't move. And I looked down in my hand and there was a big wooden spike, a stake. And I looked in the other hand and there was this like, like a yarn-like piece of, like a long yarn scarf. It was red. It was probably 20 feet long. And I knew what I needed to do in my spirit. So I tied it around that stake a couple times. I wrapped it around my waist twice and I cinched it in knots. And it was that kind of cloth that if you got a knot in it, it's going to take you a long time to get it out. And I knew. Now, and then, I don't know how I did it, but I was like Superman in the vision. I pounded that thing into the ground, that stake, and now I was staked to the ground. And then I pulled out a sword, and then one came over the hill. It was this, something out of Lord of the Rings, snarling and goo falling from its mouth, and, and I took its head off. This is going to be a rated R vision. I took its head off, and then there were two, and then there were five, and then there were 30, and there were hordes, and I remember I had a spear and it was so bloody and I was just hacking and I knew I, I, I thought God I may die but I am going down fighting this is my ground this is what I'm called to it's what Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 6. In the evil day, stand. When you've done everything else, if there's nothing else you can do, at least die on your feet with your sword in your hand. And in, during this vision, the Lord kept saying these words, and the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And I heard Christopher, I'm in the middle of this vision. This thing went on for like a half hour. And I hear Christopher, he's still up front, and he says to everybody, if you're in, the Lord told me to bring this spear in the tonight and to stake our claim. I'm to thrust it into the ground and you put your hand on this spear and put your hand on Pastor Dave. He's laying down here. And I'm thinking, you can't make this stuff up. He had no idea what I'm seeing. And so people came up and then Roger came up. And as soon as I heard Roger's voice, he's got that unique voice. And as soon as he touched my back, boom, he was in the vision with me. And we were back to back fighting, fighting the enemy and just hacking and hacking and hacking. Amy Griffin was gone that weekend. She was over at another ministry in the house of prayer. Their house of prayer. She was in the prophetic rooms. And one of the prophets that were praying over, they started to weep. And Amy said, what? And they said, she said, it's so bloody. She said, what? She said, Amy, I'm seeing a vision of you. She said, what is it? She said, you're tied to a stake to the ground. And you're fighting the enemy and there's blood everywhere. Amy's connected to this house. We're in partnership in the kingdom. That was a sign from God. God has assigned us ground that we're to stake our claim. Listen, you're going to give your life for something. It may as well be something eternal. What, what better thing could you give your life for? Everybody's going to give their life for something. And in that day, many of us are going to stand and we're going to, Jesus is going to wipe tears away. The reason he's going to wipe away is there's going to be tears of regret as we look at the wasted time and say, God, I spent my life on temporary things. God is trying to mobilize us, awaken our hearts for this hour of human history. You have an assignment. You are here for a reason. God wants to use your life, your voice, the authority he's given you to move things in the spirit. He wants his kingdom to come and it comes through you. Let's stand. I want us just to stand before the Lord for a moment. I do seriously apologize to you for keeping you so late, but I feel like this is important. And when we get to heaven, we're not going to remember the nine minutes we went over, right? Let's, let's put our hands up before the Lord.
And, and seriously, if you do have to leave, I understand. But I just want to take a few more minutes to bless what God's doing here. Oh. Those of you that aren't used to that, don't let it freak you out. People respond to the Spirit of God, and we just need to go with it. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. If you would just put your hands up like this. Father, Lord, I ask that you would release intercession. God, release hunger. Lord, holy resolve. Lord, that thing that would stake our claim. And Lord, we would tie ourselves to our assignment. Come hell or high water. If I die, I die fighting. Because uh, I can't lose. My reward is on the other side. Lord, burn it in us, Lord. God, raise up an army of intercessors. An army of proclaimers. Lord, we thank you. Lord, I thank you for what you're doing. Continue to do it, Father, we pray. Hallelujah. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.